This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Reality Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene, was good? But be careful. Because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to How Stuff Works Now. I'm your host, Lauren Vogelbaum, a researcher and writer here at How Stuff Works. Every week, I'm bringing you three stories from our team about the weird and wondrous advances we've seen in science, technology, and culture. This week, we ask, could you pick up a new physical skill without having to concentrate on learning it? We also answer that question, and spoiler alert, the answer is yes, and it involves haptic feedback. Unrelated, we peel back the veils of time to peer into America's worst cup of coffee. But first, staff editor Christopher Hasiotis, via freelance writer Patrick J. Kiger, has an election story for us. Don't worry, we're not going too political on you. This one's about why U.S. national elections are held on a Tuesday in November, and why some people are campaigning to change that. Holding elections on a Tuesday in November has been a tradition in the United States since the 1840s. But these days... That weekday timing makes it difficult for many people to exercise their right to vote. That's why some activists want to switch to a better system. According to new data from the Pew Research Center, the U.S. ranks relatively low among other countries at only 27th in the world for voter participation. In the 2012 general and presidential election, only 54% of eligible voters cast ballots. That's embarrassingly low compared to Belgium's 87% participation rate and it puts the United States barely above the voting rate in former Soviet republics like Estonia and Slovenia, which don't even have a centuries-old tradition of democracy. And participation gets even worse in years when the country doesn't elect a president. In the 2014 midterms, for instance, only 36% of the U.S. voting-age population cast ballots. So what's up with that? Why do so few Americans vote? Well, some simply may not like the candidates running in a given year, or prefer to do something else that day. Hey, maybe some even forgot that an election was happening, despite the bludgeoning media coverage. But according to the Pew survey of registered voters who didn't vote in 2014, the biggest single reason given was schedule conflicts with work or school, which kept 35% of those registered voters from exercising their rights. These schedule conflicts occur in large part because of an 1845 federal law, which designated a weekday as election day, specifically 
the first Tuesday after the first Monday of November. But an organization called Why Tuesday is advocating a solution that's already being used successfully in other countries, like Belgium, France, Germany, and India. The group wants to change voting law and hold elections at a time that's better suited for modern-day Americans. Ideally, they'd like to see Election Day held on a weekend, though as a fallback option, they'd consider making Election Day a federal holiday all its own. Why Tuesday co-founder and political scientist Norman J. Ornstein says that the current Election Day is an outmoded holdover from an age in which the country was very different from today, more rural and more pious. As Ornstein explains it, the 1845 law was written to take into account the needs of a primarily agrarian society. There was no Uber, no cars, no subway trains. Farmers had to get their products to market in wagons, which usually required a whole day of travel. And for religious reasons, they needed to be home for the Sabbath. Additionally, people settled their accounts in those days on the first day of the month, so they couldn't vote then. Given those constraints, the first Tuesday that falls after the first Monday in November seemed like the best choice at the time. But that timing isn't so convenient in a modern, industrialized, technologically advanced society like ours. The majority of people who work typically do so during the day from Monday through Friday. And we have to vote near where we live, which isn't necessarily near where we work, making it hard to vote on a lunch break, for instance. If it were up to Ornstein, he would switch Election Day to a weekend. More specifically, a 24-hour period from noon on Saturday to noon on Sunday. He'd also hold three days of early voting on Wednesday through Friday of the week before the Saturday-Sunday election. That would allow flexibility for people with work, religious practices, or out-of-town travel on weekends to vote. And to make voting even easier, Ornstein would set up remote voting stations where people could vote no matter where they lived in a city or state, using ballots personalized to their home location and local issues. Instead of moving voting day, why not just make it a national holiday? Ornstein argues that it would be more complicated that way. Setting up a new holiday is an expensive proposition for the economy, he explains. And, if you tried to piggyback it on Veterans Day a week later, as some have proposed, veterans might feel understandably shortchanged. Ornstein suggests we've stayed with Tuesday more out of inertia than resistance. If change in how we vote is something that interests you and you'd like to learn more about Ornstein's organization, check out whytuesday.org or reach out to your own government representative. Change doesn't happen by itself, after all. Next up, senior writer Jonathan Strickland talks about the potential future of learning particular skills. In a recent study, participants were able to learn Morse code without even trying in less than four hours. What if you could pick up a new skill without having to concentrate on learning it? Researchers at the Georgia Institute of Technology have done it with Morse code using Google Glass and Passive Haptic Learning, or PHL. But what does that mean? Let's break it down. The approach is passive because the user doesn't need to engage with the process in an active way. Haptic refers to feedback through touch, so a passive haptic learning system teaches users through touch without them having to focus on it. In this case, Google Glass provided the touch. Similar to most cell phones, Google Glass contains a small vibrating mechanism to alert users to notifications. In Google Glass, the mechanism rests just behind the user's ear and sends a low-frequency sound that is not heard but felt as a vibration. In their study, the researchers at Georgia Tech took advantage of this design to have the motor tap out characters in Morse code while users were distracted with another task. Twelve participants wore Google Glass while playing an online game for 20 minutes. 
While they concentrated on the game, half the participants would feel the vibrating motor tap out each letter of a word in Morse code. A voice would also say each letter through a small speaker on the headset. The other half of the participants, the control group, heard the audio cues but didn't receive any haptic feedback. The researchers tested participants on their ability to write Morse code, input Morse code on the glass touchpad, and write letters from Morse signals. They found that in under four hours, the experimental group displayed greater competence with Morse code than the control group. In fact, the experimental group was 98% accurate when encoding each letter of the alphabet in a final test. The control group was only 59% accurate. The PHL studies group at Georgia Tech previously used similar methods to teach people Braille or to play the piano, but in those cases, subjects felt vibrations on their respective fingers. This study showed that you can also use vibrations elsewhere on the body, not just the fingers, to pick up information. PHL might be useful in several practical applications, though the researchers are quick to point out that learning Morse code probably isn't one of them. It could work well with various text-based interfaces, such as learning to touch type on a standard keyboard or smartwatch. But the researchers also stress that it's not a magical way to learn anything. You're not likely to pick up a deep understanding of quantum mechanics this way. In previous work, the research group found that people would forget skills learned with PHL over time, but that it didn't take long for them to become competent again once they picked the haptic technology back up. But there's a lot that remains mysterious. What's the threshold we need to meet to learn a new task with PHL? And how long would we retain that skill? We don't have answers to those questions yet, but it's clear PHL could have multiple applications and augment the way we learn. Finally this week, senior writer Robert Lamb tells the tale of food industrialization gone wrong. In the American Civil War, demand for coffee on the front lines led to an infamously terrible cup of joe. War is hell, and sometimes the coffee is too. Consider the American Civil War a four-year bloodbath that divided a nation and claimed the lives of between 650,000 and 850,000 Union and Confederate soldiers. Looking back on such dark times, there's a certain solace to be found in moments of humanity, like sweeping acts of moral responsibility or just the small fragments of everyday life that are sprinkled amongst the madness, such as complaining about wretched coffee. Food industrialization has always progressed alongside modern warfare. An army, as the saying goes, marches on its stomach. So the streamlined production, preservation, and delivery of food offers a definitive military advantage. Evaporated milk is a fantastic example of a successful industrialized food product. It's essentially just milk dried into a paste and, in the process, pasteurized. All you have to do is add water, and behold, you've got yourself some reconstituted milk. Condensed milk is uh, roughly the same idea, only with a whole lot more sugar added. It's not perfect, but it gets the job done, which is why the U.S. government purchased bukus of condensed milk for Union Army field rations. But great ideas often lead to terrible ones. In this case, the essence of coffee. Food engineers wondered, hey, if we can successfully evaporate a glass of milk, then why not an entire cup of joe? This was no trivial matter. As John Grinspan explains in his New York Times article, How Coffee Fueled the Civil War, the Union Army thrived on coffee. It was their nerve tonic, their sustainer. General Benjamin Butler even considered it a decisive strategic factor. The modernization of coffee was nothing short of the modernization of the war effort itself. 
And so George Hummel unleashed the essence of coffee on an unsuspecting world, evaporating vast quantities of the stuff, complete with Borden's condensed milk and sugar, into what is often described as a thick brown sludge or a noxious black grease. By all accounts, Union soldiers abhorred the stuff. And these were men who, according to Grinspan, would brew coffee with water from, quote, brackish bays and Mississippi mud, liquid their horses would not drink, if that's what it took to sharpen their nerves and minds on the whetstone of holy caffeine. Despite the label's insistence that the product was celebrated and more wholesome than pure coffee, the essence of coffee tested even the standards of these hardened soldiers. And if that weren't bad enough, the men's already supercharged bowels were sometimes further corrupted by spoiled milk sold by sketchy dairymen, according to writer David A. Norris. So attempts to cut the reconstituted essence with fresh milk could prove a risky gamble. The essence of coffee was soon removed as a ration, but its reputation lingered. A few determined and potentially masochistic Civil War reenactors have recently attempted to recreate the stuff, while some claim to have improved on the recipe and concocted something really quite good. Others report the creation of a tough taffy that must be broken up with a rifle butt on cold days before boiling. Can anything good be said for the essence of coffee? Well, according to historian James T. Hickey, First Lady Mary Todd Lincoln may have incorporated the stuff into a high-caffeine, molasses-sweetened concoction to treat her frequent migraines. Plus, Union soldiers who could stomach the stuff undoubtedly got their fix, a jolt of psychoactive stimulation that helped push them toward victory in the war between the states. So think about that the next time your barista serves you a less-than-perfect pumpkin spice soy latte. At least you're not forced to endure the essence. That's our show for this week. Thank you so much for tuning in. And hey, if you're listening to this on the day that the episode comes out, go vote tomorrow for whoever and whatever. Just vote. If you're not subscribed to this podcast yet, do that thing. And send us links to anything you'd like to hear us cover plus a photo of your Halloween costume. You can send me an email at nowpodcast at howstuffworks.com. And, of course, for lots more stories like these, head on over to our home planet, now.howstuffworks.com. Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's Reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was wounded! But be careful. Because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said. 
just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.